This is a Federal News Network podcast. As the Biden administration had been signaling for some time, its proposed defense budget for 2022 is essentially flat. Should it come to pass, it would force some difficult decisions and choices for the Pentagon. For insight, we turn to the Director of Defense Budget Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Todd Harrison. And Todd, what uh, what's the best thing you can say or the most germane thing you can say about the budget as proposed? Well, at least they got it out in the month of May. <laughs> uh, this is this is the latest any budget request has ever been submitted to Congress all the way back to when they started requiring annual budget submissions back in the 1920s. But beyond that, you know, which is going to throw some sand in the gears of how Congress works through this budget, beyond it, not a lot of huge surprises here because this is the first budget of a new administration. They typically don't have time uh, to really rework uh, the programs and the activities substantially. So they had already communicated that the top line for Department of Defense would be $715 billion. So, you know, that's not a surprise. And what had been widely expected is that they are not requesting any of that money as OCO or, you know, war-related funding. They're just merging all of the war-related part of the budget with the regular base budget. You know, I think what's important, though, when you're looking at this budget request is rather than comparing it to the FY21 level of funding, the current level of funding, really what you should be comparing it to is what was the previous plan for FY22, right? So they had previously planned a top-line budget for DOD of $722 billion. So this is a bit lower, $715 billion. Still more than you know the current budget. The current level of funding for twenty one uh, is seven hundred and four billion, right? So it's increasing, but really it's just increasing at or a little bit below the rate of inflation. So maybe a pay raise for military could be covered by this, but no gigantic new programs and no increase in ships and planes and tanks and so forth. Well, yeah, so that's where you start to get interesting. The military pay raise and civilian pay raise is proposed in this budget is two point seven percent. That's as expected. That's right at the uh, employment cost index, I believe. And and so they're just kind of keeping up with the private sector there. But if you've got the labor component of your budget growing 2.7% and your overall budget is not growing (laughs) by that amount, then that starts to put a squeeze on other things. And so that's where I think both DOD and Congress uh, are going to find some difficulties in figuring out how to navigate, you know, some of these internally growing costs. And what are they saying service by service? So the Army had kind of been warning everyone for several months that uh, they were going to be the bill payer. Uh, and so we're starting to see that probably not as much of a bill payer as might have been uh, expected by some. But we're seeing pretty decent increase in the Air Force budget, looking at if if you take out the classified pass-through funding, and you take out the Space Force funding, the Air Force is actually getting a a budget increase of about 2.2%, not adjusting for inflation there. So coming out pretty well. Now, if you look at the Space Force's budget, uh, and I've gone through that in in some detail here, um, they're getting a net increase of about 9%. Of course, that's 9% of a much smaller budget. (laughs) Uh, And in addition to that, they're getting some transfers of funding that looks like it's coming from the Army and the Navy. Uh, It's transferring over into the Space Force. Um, You know, and of course, you know, the Navy had been widely expected 
to be getting uh, you know a significant plus up in their budget, and we see that happening as well. Yeah, so this could be taken then as again hastily as it might have been done, although I think they were probably thinking about it, you know, when the campaign started. <laughs> but this does, in some sense, constitute an expression of how they think the world threats are evolving. It, it does, you know, how how threats are evolving, how the new administration may approach uh, some of these difficult strategic choices, but it also reflects the fact that they are dealing in a constrained budget environment and they're not going to get, you know, unlimited levels of funding. Uh, and so they're going to have to make some of these hard choices. We're speaking with Todd Harrison, Director of Defense Budget Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And is there a historical period that parallels this? Have we seen this before, this kind of going in, putting the skids on to some extent, reallocating among sea, air, and land forces when a new administration comes in? Yeah, we did see uh, some signs of that in the first term of the Obama administration. It wasn't the first budget request, actually. It was really when you got to the uh, fiscal year 2012 budget requests that the Obama administration started you know, pumping the brakes on the year-over-year increases in defense spending. And then ultimately, they set off a, a review within the Department of Defense about how to make these trade-offs known as a strategic choices and management review. Some people called it the skimmer. Some people called it the scammer. It was a, a great acronym to work with for <laughs> jokes. <laughs> so, you know, I think we're, we may be looking at a similar type of strategic review of how to manage under, you know, budgetary constraints happening over the next year. On the other hand, though, this is not a wholesale gutting, say, of reducing acquisitions, reducing forces drastically in order to pay for the social programs. And they've got big ambitions for social programs, but it doesn't seem to be directly at the expense of defense. It is not. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum trade-off, right, between defense and non-defense. And that's what this budget is communicating. At least that's the policy of the Biden administration. To put it in some historical perspective, you know, it's $715 billion in the defense budget. We're at a level that when you adjust for inflation is higher than at the peak of the Reagan administration. So this is not a, a wimpy or a gutted defense budget by any means. It's a very robust defense defense budget. The challenge is that, you know, in the past 30 years since the Reagan administration, a lot of internal costs have grown. And so that budget, even though it may be higher, it only supports a military force that is a third or half the size it was at the peak of the Reagan years. Yeah. So we see things continuing, I guess, trend-wise that even Secretary Bob Gates pointed out, health care costs, and as we spoke about a few minutes ago, salaries rising. The all-volunteer force historically has been expensive, and there's no way of really bending that curve without some drastic reduction, which I don't think any administration wants to make. Right, exactly. But, you know, that's what they may be facing, that, those kind of choices in the years ahead, especially when it comes to our ground forces, the Army and Marine Corps. Um, that's something to be watching, uh, not just in how Congress responds to this budget request, but 
the budget requests it will get from the department next year and the year after, what are they going to do with our ground forces? And, and can they afford to sustain the level of ground forces in the Army, the number of BCTs in the Marine Corps, the number of battalions? Can they actually afford to sustain those in the long term while also fully funding these other strategic priorities? Yes. So this could, in some sense, force a acceleration of alternate forms of warfare, autonomous also cyber warfare and ways of disabling enemies other than pure ground force. Yes. And, you know, you hear a lot of talk about that within the Pentagon, how they need to focus on, you know, the new way of fighting war. One of those priority areas that you hear really each of the the service chiefs talk about is something called JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control. That's the ability to connect sensors and weapon systems across domains, across the services all together so they can share information fluidly. One of the things that jumped out at me at this budget request to dive down into some details here is the Air Force's program for JADC2. It's known as the Advanced Battle Management System, ABMS. They got a big cut in funding. So they had previously projected that for FY22, um, they would get about $450 million in funding. But you look at the requests, they're only getting $200 million uh, in funding this time. So they got cut by more than half from what was previously projected. Uh, and so that's going to be interesting to hear more details out of the Air Force on if JADC2 is such a high priority, why did they cut the funding for it? Right. So we don't know whether that originated in the White House or somewhere or if it originated in the Air Force. Yeah, presumably it, it originated somewhere within DOD because this program is is relatively small in defense terms. And so it'd be unusual for the White House to take an interest in something as small as this. So my question is, was this cut directed by DOD leadership, like the secretary, the deputy secretary, or was it directed by Air Force leadership? Did they know something about the program that we don't? And of course, this is all to be fleshed out program by program in congressional district by congressional district yet. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, that's an important caveat is that this is only a budget request. Congress ultimately sets the defense budget. Todd Harrison is Director of Defense Budget Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. As always, thanks so much. Glad I could do it. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Still to come, warm weather and longer days make some feds think of those with food insecurity. But first... The Coast Guard expands its mentoring program and modernizes it with matching software. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff To Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, he worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. 
Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community 
uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, 
the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.